Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. In the summer of 2018, I released a short series of audio stories, which were the first season of this show. Those episodes, plus other works, can be found at www.blightstories.com. Season 2 has been in production for some time, and I was considering a couple of new formats for the show. I was actually planning on recording a new episode in the studio as early as next week because uh, I have just moved back to Milwaukee after three years in New York City, and I thought production of the show would be easier. Then, in the new reality that we are all living in, the COVID-19 pandemic confined us all to our homes as infections and deaths spiked around the world. So those plans were put on hold. I don't want to over-explain or overstate the devastating health risk, the devastating effects on the economy, the devastating blow to our system of government on our ability to provide for ourselves and our families that this pandemic has caused, but things are bad. So in the face of this uncertain future, I started contacting friends and just asking what they thought could be done. What could we do about poverty and food insecurity in our community? How could we alleviate pressure on hospitals by staying healthy and staying home? How could we support friends and family who find themselves without jobs? Because everything is closing, people are losing their jobs everywhere. How can we provide a platform for artists who cannot sell books or records or paintings as tours and exhibitions are being postponed and canceled? I think the conclusion that we came to in these conversations was that we didn't really know what could be done, but we could speculate. We could study, we could consult, we could do something. So instead of the second season of Blight being another string of poetic stories of childhood drug abuse, the second season of Blight will be stories, essays, and interviews about how to confront this uncertain future. There will be essays about gardening and food sharing, about mental and physical health, about transportation, about crowdfunding and unemployment, about how to enact our political power as citizens, and everything else that comes up along the way. We will be interviewing experts, at least learned people, on these subjects in the Milwaukee community. We'll be featuring and promoting works by local artists as well as artists out there facing their own isolated struggles. And I will sometimes regale the listening audience with poetic stories about childhood drug abuse. Because things have changed, and it is on us, hopefully for the better, to take care of ourselves and each other. I think we can come through this crisis stronger more considerate, more careful, with a desire not to repeat our mistakes, to re-examine the shape of our society, and to not take for granted the good lives we can attain. So that was my inspirational bit. Now let's switch over to some of the more daunting data we're dealing with. By the time this episode lands, the infected count of the COVID-19 virus will have reached well over a half million worldwide, with the death toll well over 20,000. Originally presented as a virus that almost exclusively afflicted the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, every day younger and healthier people are joining the fatality roll call. In Italy, death tolls are soaring with as many as 500 fatalities in a single day. According to the model and report created by the Imperial College of London, if we do nothing and move on with our lives like the COVID-19 virus is just another form of the flu, the loss of life will be catastrophic. 
80% of Americans will become infected. 2.2 million would die. People with severe COVID-19 need to be put on ventilators, with about 50% survival rate um, in that. In a pandemic, the need for ventilators would be 30 times the number available, so all those people would die too, putting the American death toll closer to 4 million. The U.S. makes up for 4.4% of the global population, so you take that data and apply it to the world, and yeah, those are really grave numbers. This model can be found at the Imperial College website, which I will share on our website, and much of the interpretation of this data was lifted from the Twitter feed by writer and educator Jeremy C. Young. I will also include links to his work on our site. The good news. Those are worst-case numbers. We're not currently operating under that model. Social distancing will help slow the spread of the disease. Whatever we can do to relieve the stress on our healthcare systems will slow the spread of the disease. A vaccine has already been given to humans, bypassing animal testing in a risky but necessary move, but it will take a while for us to know if that vaccine is safe for consumption and distribution. These suppression tactics, which many countries and cities are exercising now, will work if they're done properly. Quarantine of those infected, entire population social distancing, the closure of schools and many workplaces, the banning of large public events will slow the spread of the the virus. And the death toll will peak in about two weeks and then go down. But there's a catch, and it's a big one. According to the Imperial College study, if we let up on the means of suppression before a vaccine is administered to the population, the virus can bounce back, and those catastrophic death tolls from earlier are back in play. So, by this model, we need to maintain suppression, at least on and off, after the first suppression period would end in approximately July, until the vaccine can be deemed safe. And this... The vaccine being deemed safe could take, will take, drumroll please, 14 months. It will take a few months to produce enough vaccine for the entire population, which brings us to about 18 months from now. Obviously, this is all a fluid situation. Could a vaccine be available before then? Perhaps. Could we find a way to return to work? Perhaps. But this model does make sense. And I think we can all take some sort of comfort in this data. If we can get through this, we can greatly, greatly reduce loss of life. But a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and lose their means of supporting themselves. This will all be very hard. Life will be and already has been disrupted in a major way. During suppression and following, it will be imperative that we find ways to operate outside of the normal system to keep ourselves healthy, happy, and provided for. So, like, that's what we're going to try to do here at Blight. We are going to ask questions, float ideas, and find little ways to return to the promise of living our good lives. So let's get started. Our first story this week comes from Adam Krauss who has appeared on more than 30 recordings and published numerous essays and books, including The Revolution Will Be Hilarious and other essays, New Compass 2018. We're glad to have him. Here's Adam.
These are scary and confusing times. A pandemic sweeps the globe as economies collapse. So what on earth can we do? Social systems were formed to maintain the well-being of their inhabitants. In the midst of this global pandemic, supply chains are breaking down. People are getting laid off. Sources of money and food are uncertain. If this is going to keep up until July, August, or even next year, we may endure it broke, hungry, begging for relief, or fighting in the streets. But there is the option to create alternative supply chains in advance of the coming collapse of current systems. And we don't need to mimic the function of these now-failing systems. In fact, that would be a terrible idea. Systems of production and distribution based on global supply chains and money earned through wages at points within those chains cannot and will not function. So right now we need to build systems of food production and mutual aid at the home level, then block to block, neighborhood to neighborhood, and then citywide. We can feed and support one another from the bottom up. Many of us are afraid to begin begging for dollars from the federal government. And in the face of rampant inflation, money will buy less and less. Rather than keeping our lives and livelihoods tied to the fluctuations of currencies, we can maintain those lives and livelihoods by producing and sharing outside that system. Because if social systems were formed to maintain the well-being of their inhabitants, the one we inhabit is failing to function. We need a new system. Food production is the first thing we need to think about. Everyone needs to eat, ideally three meals a day. The close-cut grass lawns that dominate our yards? Those originated in France and England in the late Renaissance, but really caught on in English homes of wealthy landowners and the new capitalist class at the advent of the Industrial Revolution. These manicured expanses of close-cut, inedible greenery served as symbols of wealth. Whoever lives there can just go buy food. They're so rich they don't need to grow any, and so they don't. U.S. citizens may have staged a rebellion over the English government's taxation without representation, but they maintained many of the values of the mother country, including a love for lawns and how lawns function as a social signifier. Owning a home with a lawn here means that whoever lives there, just like a wealthy member of the landed gentry across the pond, can just go buy food. They don't need to grow any. They have truly made it. American dream achieved. But the supply chains for that food for sale are breaking down. At the time of this recording, unemployment claims in Wisconsin reached 45,000. Businesses lock their doors and neither send nor receive. So showing off your ability to buy whatever, whenever, through the greatness of your grass has become an outmoded way of being. This is a time when gardening becomes truly useful and potentially revolutionary. Move it from the hobbies column to the civic duty column. Growing food and keeping your hands clean are two of the most important activities you can do right now. Plant fruits and vegetables in every piece of soil. It's still a little soon to get plants on the ground here, but seeds can get started indoors, grass can get turned over, compost bins made. No one needs to single-handedly produce enough food for their family. We all just need to contribute to the collective needs of our community. A few years ago, I was in Hamtramck, a municipality almost entirely engulfed by the city of Detroit. Every house on every block in the neighborhood I stayed 
had at least part of their yard dedicated to a single crop, rows and rows of just carrots, or just cabbage, or just corn. At harvest time, produce gets exchanged for other produce, a bag of tomatoes for a bag of corn, and on and on until everyone has what they need. So now, as the ground thaws, call your neighbors. Decide what to grow. Promise to share. Turn over that soil. Shake the grass out of it. And what to do with that grass? Well, so far, I've been talking in general kind of theoretical terms. I'll close with a little bit of practical advice on composting. Compost produces rich, complex soil in which plants can thrive. Some serious permaculturalists believe it's best to focus on soil alone. By tending to the soil, you create an environment full of useful bacteria, fungi, and larger living things, and the plants you bring to that soil will thrive on their own. So to get a compost pile going, one quarter of it needs to be high in nitrogen. You can use something like coffee grounds or freshly mown grass. But a word of warning, too much coffee grounds and anaerobic bacteria things that don't need free oxygen to live and often use nitrogen, will thrive and your compost will heat up too fast and smell terrible. So if your compost gets too anaerobic, add some sawdust, mulch, or leaves. All right, you've added your nitrogen-rich component, about one quarter of the total mass. Now, let the remaining three quarters of your compost pile be a mixture of two different elements. First, something like straw or leaves, and then food scraps of raw vegetables. Balancing these elements with the nitrogen-rich part will create incredible compost. Turn it over every few weeks. Watch out for excessive mold, steam, or horrible smells, which could indicate too much anaerobic activity. But it's easy to get the hang of, and you can add compost to your plants throughout the year to bring them nutrients. You don't need to create yards and yards of compost before you get started planting. But, if you're getting ready to plant and you're worried about soil contamination like lead or other heavy metals, there are a lot of things you can do. For instance, avoid root crops or leafy vegetables. Roots are in contact with the soil and likely to have metals stick to them, which is difficult to wash off. And when plants do uptake heavy metals, those metals get stored in the leaves. So, if you have a house with lead paint or some other reason to worry about toxicity, try planting something like peas or tomatoes where you're eating the fruit rather than the leaves or roots. You could also remove and replace the topsoil. This can be pretty labor-intensive, and it might be hard to arrange when a lot of soil distributors could be closed or the city could be on lockdown. Or put down a barrier like cardboard. Or add lots of organic material, like food scraps of vegetables, mulch, or that compost you're making. With more organic matter, there are more bonding sites in the soil for heavy metals, making those metals less likely to make it into your plants. Or you can plant above the soil using pots, containers, or raised beds. By feeding your neighborhood, you will also be fighting global warming. Increasing the richness of your soil doesn't just provide delicious and nutritious food for yourself and those around you. The increased diversity of plant life in your neighborhood gets carbon out of the atmosphere and into the ground. Eons before billionaires started throwing money at designs for expensive machines to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, plants and soil had already been doing everything all those non-existent machines aimed to do. Composting and planting crops can be a win-win situation, minus all the sickness, suffering, and fear we're currently facing. 
The existing supply chains meant to distribute food are crumbling, but we can build new ones. This starts with building up soil, tending our gardens, and then tending to our neighbors' needs while they tend to ours. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Our next story comes from Joe Hilton. Joe is currently pursuing her MFA in creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College. She has a podcast called IMD Bitch Fest, which is a podcast about movies and, in my opinion, is a true delight. Here's Joe. I feel sad about the world. I feel sad about politics and the president and the fact that Australia's summers are now twice as long as their winters. I feel sad that in Germany, 2019 was the first year that the harvest of frozen grapes to make ice wine failed because the winter was too warm. I feel sad about dwindling endangered species protections and rising suicide rates. I feel sad about this global pandemic and the millions of people who lost their jobs and the millions of people who are missing their family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors. For those who are still commuting on public transit and for those who work in healthcare, like my parents, who are working 12-hour days with no signs of stopping. And for those who have lost more than jobs and the freedom to walk outside without fear. For those who have lost their people. I feel sad about small things too, like how much waste the New York Times subscription I've been assigned to obtain for class creates in my house. I feel sad about the fact that I overdrew my bank account recently, and I feel sad about the fact that I'm scared to get a good job after graduation because I will lose my Medicaid. I feel sad about endometriosis and the cost of health care and that pizza gives me diarrhea. I feel sad that I'm $150,000 in debt to the U.S. government because I wanted to get a terminal degree, and I feel sad that my loved ones are suffering to various degrees in various ways and that I can't help and that it won't ever change. I've developed strategies for coping with this general, natural sadness of a disappointed and seemingly dying world. One of them is the catalog. Tanya Harding, for example how she wanted to skate so badly at only three years old, how it was all she talked about before she even knew she was good at it, how she was consistently undermined by the figure skating institution because she didn't come from money. She came from poverty and abuse, and poverty and abuse are not the embodiment of traditional figure skating values. Tanya Harding became the first American woman to land a triple axel in competition. Sometimes it seems like some people are meant for glory before any of the other stuff gets in the way before the smashing of kneecaps and the involvement of the FBI. That magic, the idea that some people are born for certain things, goes into the catalog. The practice of beekeeping is another example. Human beings in puffy white head-to-toe outfits, standing in the open air, pulling slats of honeycomb out of a drawer. Bees everywhere, the smell of honey, the buzz of creation, the harvest of something sweet that lasts forever, that never goes bad, that keeps indefinitely in your pantry. That practice, the silliness of it, and the sweetness of it, the fact that we ever thought about doing something like that at all, goes into the catalog. 
The newest addition to the catalog is the website numismaticnews.net. I discovered Numismatic News a few weeks after I got an elongated penny from a machine in Las Vegas. Surrounded by piles of Marilyn Monroe paraphernalia in a brightly lit gift shop, I inserted a penny and two quarters into the machine and turned a crank until the penny came out flattened, emblazoned with the image of the Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign. Later, home from my trip, I was curious about where these coins originated. I learned that no one knows the designer of the first elongated coin, but it was created for the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, the same fair that gave us Cracker Jacks, Juicy Fruit Gum, an early prototype of the zipper, the first Ferris wheel, and which supposedly gave Pabst Beard's blue ribbon. Since then, the popularity of elongated coins have ebbed and flowed, but there have always been people obsessed with them. I became obsessed with these people obsessed with elongated coins. Elongated coins are called exonumia, which are items like tokens and coins that aren't considered legal currency. Exonumia is a branch of numismatics, the study of coins, currency, and metals. Numismatic News, a place online for numismatists together, has sections with names like announcements, news at the U.S. Mint. There is a column that I love called Coin Clinic that has been written by Allard Herbert since July 2008. People write in questions like, where did the suggestion come from to put Lincoln on the scent in 1909? Or, we know of attempts to get the turkey on our coins by Ben Franklin, but wasn't a duel fought over a proposal to put a goose on the first dollar? In response to a reader's comments that their coin is so rare that they want to walk it through when they have it graded and slabbed, Herbert answers, when it comes to authenticating coins, you will never be allowed to accompany your coin through the process because the grading companies operate under very strict security conditions. Maggie Judkins writes in a section called Coin of the Year that the day was sweet as honey for the Bank of Latvia when its five-euro honey coin was given top honors at 2020 Coin of the Year during an awards ceremony held February 1st. In an article titled Face to Face with Fakes, Dave Harper writes that fake coins struck in China have bedeviled the hobby for years. The catalog, if it isn't obvious, is a file cabinet in my head of reasons why the world is mysterious in a way that makes it worth staying in, worth opening your eyes to, even worth loving. I know the coin collectors on numismaticnews.net aren't collecting coins or writing their columns for my benefit. Tanya Harding wasn't thinking of one-year-old me when she landed her triple axle. Beekeepers don't don their uniforms for me, and the bees don't make honey with me in mind. But occasionally, I feel like I'm walking through the world for the bees, for Tanya, for the numismatists. When I wake up alone on a gloomy day, and my room and even my heart feel dirty, I don't have clean clothes to wear, and I can't go outside, and the planet and its people are dying, Alan Herbert's passion for coins can feel like a good enough reason to rise. Thank you for joining us today on Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, a rating on Apple Pods is a true gift. Theme music for the show today was provided by Adam Krauss from his record, Ritual Healing Songs of the Upper Midwest. You can find more of Adam's music and work at adamkraus.bandcamp.com. Taking us out today is a song that I find both fitting and beautiful by Marielle Alschwang and The Visitations. Marielle is a prolific and elemental talent. Do yourself a favor and visit Music.bandcamp.com and pick up one of her records. Here is Be the Dirt. <laughs>